Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 33, The Life and Death of Mary Jane Kelly, part 2. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today from Maidstone, Kent, in the UK, is Paul Begg. From Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, is Robert McLaughlin. From Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK, is Chris Scott. In Neath, in Wales, is Gareth Williams. Ben Holm is coming to us from Penshurst in Kent in the UK. John Bennett is in North London. And from California, USA, is our special guest, Simon Wood. Thanks, everyone, for joining today. The first thing I would like to touch on is something that was asked on the message boards concerning our last podcast, the Mary Jane Kelly Part 1. And that is taking us back to Maxwell's testimony. And it also leads us into today's topic, myths and legends, facts and fictions. And it has to do with not only Maxwell's testimony, but then later census reports and a few post-Miller's court murder stories that have arisen over the years. The last episode, we did not address the possibility that Mary Jane Kelly was not the woman murdered in Miller's court that maybe she had survived and lived to a ripe old age. What is everyone's opinions on the identity of the victim as Mary Kelly? And then also a follow-up, I'll get out of the way now, is since we know so little about the real Mary Kelly, does it ultimately matter who was the victim? And if it wasn't Mary Jane Kelly found in the room at Miller's Court, how does that figure in or out of the canonical five? Anyone have any opinions on that? Yeah, plenty. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Chris Uh, Scott. Personally, and I can only speak personally, I I don't think think there's any reasonable doubt that the woman who died in Miller's Court was the person who had lived there and who was known as Mary Jane Kelly, whatever her real name was. Although she was in a dreadful state, facially and bodily, three people, well, two, two people who definitely knew her very well identified the body, and one person who claimed to know her very well identified the body. Um, that's uh, Joe Barnett, John McCarthy, and George Hutchinson. And I, I, I can't see any valid reason for doubting their word. It's as simple as that. I, and to me, there's no other viable candidate. Some people have said it was this mysterious Julia who supposedly had lived with Kelly at some stage shortly before the murder. Um, but, I mean, her identity or existence can't even be established, so... You're, you're really jumping from one sort of horse of vagueness to another. So, uh, personally, I, I've, I have no doubt that it was Kelly who died in Miller's Court. I'd just point out there, though, that um, very quickly, with regard to the people who made the identification, they, of course, would have expected it to be Mary Kelly. And if the facial and bodily mutilations were that bad, as they would appear to be from the photographs, then how certain... Were they, if there had been any suggestion that it wasn't Mary Kelly, if you follow mine? Yes, I, I can see a lot, yes. And, I, I think on that point... Sorry, go on. Sorry, no, sorry, so, I don't uh, yeah, really. I was just going to pick up on that point, Paul. It's, it's it, you know, the, um, the fact of the matter is that, well, let's say uh, a good third of, of Kelly's body was obliterated. Um, mm. Not that I've worked it out, but, yeah. Um, but, but, but the remaining two-thirds, let's say would have been recognisable, at least to Barnett, um, who'd known her, who'd lived with her for, what was it, 10 months, 18 months? A uh, considerable time anyway. Um, 
So, you know, the fact that the features were, were decimated and um, the, the, the thorax pulled apart and the abdomen completely dismantled, um, he still got the, you know, the shins and the feet and the hands and, uh, according to his testimony, at least the ear or hair and, and, and eyes to go by. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, but I just wondered if, if there wasn't any expectation of it being somebody else, mm-hmm. how, how much of a ling- but, lingering view would you have Yeah, but then you get the two important questions. Um, why doesn't she come forward and say, hey, I'm still alive? And uh, B, if, if, she, if she does disappear in some conspiratorial way, um, where does she find the money and how, did, how does she just disappear? I mean, she did disappear in a sort of conspiratorial way, saying, you know, this is now my chance to get away. Why didn't someone say, no, she's not dead, I've, she's here, right. she's over here, right. or we've seen her, and things like that. She would have been spotted around for a little while, at least, probably. Theoretically, she was by uh, yes. Uh, yes, by Mrs. Mortimer. I mean, I'm... I'm don't want to be manipulated into a position because I, I'm not <laughs> even by, by myself. I mean, because I'm not maintaining that uh, that it wasn't Kelly. I, I don't see any real reason why Mary Kelly wouldn't have come forward uh, unless there was some reason um, for her to, as you say, you know, as to it, 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 to conspiratorially disappear. Mm. Let's not forget, however, that, that people were used to walking quite considerable distances and so if she had wanted to it wouldn't necessarily have, she wouldn't necessarily have required a lot of money just to have bowed out completely and 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 walked to some other part of mm. london or um, or indeed uh down into kent or or, or wherever uh and uh, of course she could have uh, made such money as uh, she needed to survive by the way that she was making it in london anyway yeah so, so it's not impossible, but I can't see any reason why she would have wanted to do no. that, though. I think the other well, thing... Sorry, so what you're saying, Paul, if I'm getting you right, is she hears of her own death and thinks, cool, this is a good idea, and um, sort of capitalises on it. Well, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, all I'm, all, I, I was merely moved to, to make the observation that, first of all, with regard to the identification... Um, I wondered how much of Mary Kelly there was to to, to enable an identification. Uh, how long they would have spent looking at the body to make the identification, and in the event that you didn't, exp- you, you had no reason to think that it would be somebody else. Um, so therefore, they would they they could quite easily have uh, um, that the identification said, yes, that's Mary Kelly, because they've gone in, they've taken one glance, it looks right, the hair's, hair's the right length or the right colour or, or whatever, assuming that even that was uh, a, a means for them to be able to, to, to draw a... I mean, I would imagine it could have been blood-spattered and in a mess. I, I really just don't know. But then, whatever reason, I mean, if, if, if you assume that Mary Kelly had a reason to disappear, um, then... There were means that she, by whereby she could have done that, but of course, um, without the without the motive, without the reason to have disappeared, then there's no reason why she should have done it, and the whole thing just doesn't make sense. 
I, I could, I could so. well imagine that Mary had, had previously disappeared, which you know why she ended up in the East End, but yeah. you know something in her dark past. But what, I guess once you've reached that sort of rock bottom, um, you know what motive could there be for just you know upping and doing doing a vanishing act? Uh, of course, one I of think, the theories think, is, think, is that she was somebody wanted to kill her, isn't it? I think it's the worth virtues. mentioning uh, that because uh, some readers may not be aware that the you know this this whole idea that it wasn't. Kelly is is comparatively modern. I mean, there's there's no contemporary suggestion that the woman in the room wasn't Kelly. And I think also, if Kelly had simply wanted to disappear, there 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 are far less radical. I mean, she could have just walked out. And I mean, it would have been quite easy to just disappear into the the mass of the East End or wherever she wanted to go. Um, with regards to motive, it was mentioned briefly last week. There was a a story that. Um, her father had come looking for her in London and she'd hidden from him and presumably had refused to see him and he, he went away disappointed. So if, if one were looking for a motive as to why she would want to disappear, it, it could possibly have been family reasons. I mean, she maybe didn't want uh, members of her family to find out, you know, what level she'd been reduced to, but that's sheer speculation. But I think it's very important to bear in mind that this just wasn't uh, an issue... That, that, that bothered the contemporary mind. It's, it's like the whole royal conspiracy thing. It's of, it's of comparatively recent vintage. I, I, think, I think the roots of it can be traced to that as well, uh, Chris. You know, it, um, well, perhaps not just the royal conspiracy, but the, there have been some sort of far-flung theories. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, all, these, it's all these multiple um, supposed roles for Mary Kelly about her being um, a wet nurse or a nursemaid or a witness at the wedding yes. and this, that and the other. All of which, frankly, and I won't, I won't mince my words, are nonsense, in my opinion. I think there's absolutely not a shred of... I mean, even, even in the story that I've been posting, uh, and I've let the person involved know, I mean, this so-called Mary Kelly in Tottenham story, which is a survivor story. You know, this is about a woman who in, in the early 1890s claimed that she was Mary Kelly. And I've already said to the lady concerned that I think it's nonsense. It's interesting. Because it casts a you know, an interesting contemporary light on a sort of survival myth. But uh, historically, I think it's nonsense. I think there's absolutely no evidence that this person who lived in Tottenham in 1891, claiming to be the Mary Kelly of Miller's Court, was anything of the sort. In, in a way, though, just going back to this Mary Kelly disappearing um, aspect, she had, in a way, already disappeared because... You know, uh, nobody can find her. And, I mean, Chris, you know, if you can't find her, nobody can. You know, you're the king of this sort of thing. Well, no, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't go that far. Go, well, I would. <laughs> um, but, but I'm just looking at my screen, and there are, there are 14 discrete moments, events in her life. You know, marriage, moving away, yeah. all together, um, other, husband dying, all this business. And it's a dead end every time. Yes, but that all hinges on one fact, which is her name. I mean, all of that may be true. She may have been a woman who married a Davis who died in a colliery disaster who came over from Limerick. But if we don't know her real name, then none of that is traceable. That's a very good point. You know, the the linchpin is her name. I'm absolutely convinced, and I said in the book, that the name Mary Jane Kelly is an assumed name. It's not her real name. And I know it's not what a lot of people want to hear because... You know, there's. I think that a lot of people overestimate what you can do with with census and birth, marriages and deaths and research in general. But if you haven't got a name to hang on, there's to put it bluntly, there's sod all you can do because you don't know, you don't know who you're chasing. 
a name like Mary Jane Kelly, I don't know if this was picked up on last week, but Kelly in Ireland is probably a bit like Smith in England. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. sort of a typical Irish girl's name, Mary Jane Kelly. Yeah. You know, it's like John yeah. Smith or... Exactly. Basic and unfortunately, name. unfortunately, we, we've unfortunately we've got her marrying a Davis in Wales. You know, you're, yeah, you're right. just compounding the problem. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've thought for a long time that um, th this story um, is is fiction. Her whole past is fiction. But then I can't answer the question that comes out of that. If it's fiction, why would somebody go to such lengths to invent this elaborate fiction? Exactly. Yeah, and as, as I've observed as well, you know, but, uh, we hear romantic stories all the time about. Uh, you know the 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 master of the house and uh, and all that sort of stuff, having his wicked way with his servant, and her being forced in her shame to leave the family home or being turfed out of the family home, um, or even people becoming billiards referees, which was apparently one of the lowest sort of level people stooped to back in the nineteenth century, kicked out of the house. Uh, but you know, in, in in the case of Kelly, you've got this a typical sort of sob story in many ways. Um, but then she, she she mentions Wales in it. Okay, you've got the yeah. business with Paris, but you know uh, why Wales? And I, you know, I, I speak as a Welshman, and I, I, perhaps it's because it's familiarity breeding contempt. But I don't see it as a particularly romantic place to grow up in. Uh, <laughs> so there is that that strange quirk. You know, why the hell did she mention uh, Carmarthen yeah. and Cardiff? Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. There's, there's also this fall from grace. Um, which happens after this trip to France, which is all the stuff of uh, Victorian heroines and melodrama. Yeah. Also perfectly reasonable. We know that there were procurers uh, working uh, in London uh, to get people abroad, and there, there was... Uh, it was ne <coughs> never of the size that uh, people thought it was, but there was the white slave trade was was yeah. was going on, and there was very much. Uh, uh, I was reading quite recently of of how uh, significant that was with Jewish girls. Uh, a lot of Jewish girls arriving at the the, the ports and everything were being picked up by people, uh, and and being uh, put into prostitution and, and and sent abroad for on major promises um, of, of right. You know, of good life. And, so it's and the, I would say the vast majority of those women changed their name. Uh, I would assume uh, historically that the vast majority of the prostitutes working in the East End, and we've seen it with other Jack the Ripper victims, went by a different name. So when Chris yeah. says that people maybe don't want to hear or find it hard to believe that Mary Jane Kelly is not traceable in the records as Mary Jane Kelly, I think that shows a bit of historical naivete when she most likely, if she was like 90% of the other prostitutes in the 19th century, would have changed her name automatically upon going um, into that particular trade. Doesn't everyone agree? Um, yes, not necessarily uh, an, al I an alias, I, was, I suppose. I think it was mentioned last week, and I, I mean, I don't know the social reason behind it, but it does seem to be that, that Kelly was a particularly popular assumed name. I mean, if, if you believe all the accounts, and at least um, I including the non-canonicals, then at least three of the other potential victims at some time used the name Kelly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we know we know we know that Eddowes, when she was arrested, gave the name Sorry. Mary Ann Kelly. It's reported that Martha Tabram used the name Kelly, and it's also reported that Alice Mackenzie used the name Kelly. Mm. So whether it was a sort of um, 
you know, cover all um, ladies of the night name or whether it was just used as a convenience if you were arrested. I mean, I don't know what uh, what steps the police then, if you were arrested, I don't know what steps the police would have taken to verify your identity. I would have thought probably not very much, especially if you were being arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Can I, can I just add one thing quickly, which was about this uh, initial account? Because I have seen mentioned in some posts that uh, some people seem to be unsure as to how much of this account actually came from Kelly and whether or not it could have been invented or embroidered by Barnett. Personally, I think that's unlikely, and that at least at least the outlines of the, the the story about the Welsh connection and the Davis man and all that are in his initial police statement, which was given on the day of the murder. So if he did invent it, he did it in bloody short order. And, I mean, it's quite a complex story for him to have almost invented on the spot, which I find... Yeah. Uh, pretty hard to believe. I, th- I think he's relaying it um, fairly accurately as Mary told it to him. And of course, some of it has uh, corroboration from elsewhere. Of course, you know, um, Mrs. Exactly. I mean, there, there are yeah. some kind of external corroborations there, which which help, yeah. Yeah. which suggest that yeah. it isn't total fabrication on the part of uh, no. Barnett. No, it's, it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm I'm looking at my screen at the moment at his witness statement of the 9th of November. This is the one that he presumably gave to Abilene. Yeah. Um, and he talks about her uh, marrying a collier. And, I th- and he says here, I think she said her husband's name was Davis or Davies. Now, that's on the 9th. In the 11th, on the 11th, he appears in Lloyd's Weekly News and says, I don't know his name, the dead husband. And then right at the end of the article, it says from another source, it appears that the collier whom the deceased married was named Davies. His, his yeah. story is shifting all the time. I don't, I don't know. That, that, that could be a case of erroneous reporting and that there are also other accounts in that same day where he firmed up his selection of the name because in the very initial reports, and I th- you know, you've got to remember the emotional state he would have been in. He said, oh, the man's name was Davis or Davies. And as Gareth said, this wouldn't be differentiated in Wales anyway. But um, the, other, the, the reports I've seen, the later ones, he actually plumped for the IES version. So he, ex- he ex- excluded the DAVIS version. Another um, aspect of Barnett's testimony and also the interviews he gave to the press concerned the possibility that Mary Kelly was living with a small child at the time of her murder. Um, yeah. This um, appeared in a newspaper article. I, I can't spit it out at the top of my head. But um, are on the twelfth. Thank you, Simon. At the end of this article, it is uh, stated that she was living with a small child at the time, or something to that effect. And there is there has been uh, speculation that the reporter cribbed this information from previous, you know, interview that Barney. It was considered an ex- <clears throat> an exclusive, according to the paper. But when in actuality, mm-hmm. it was probably cribbed from. Other sources, and then the part about the what, Mary Kelly. What, what, what date was that? What date was that? The exclusive. Uh, yeah, what date was that? Yeah, the, um, this story relates to uh, to, to uh, a woman called Margaret, and uh, who was saying that she would do away with herself, etc. And also, uh, it was a first floor room that um, that's right. Uh, that, that that was being spoken about here so i think rather than having anything whatsoever to do with 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 mary kelly or or with anybody who knew her it was a a completely independent story which became garbled 
but there are lots of uh, there are lots of variants of this because the the first time I've it was reported on the tenth, the day after the murder, and even by even within that day had it become a a very complex story because the story says basically that. Um, that she had a, a well, some versions say seven, some say eleven. Um, a boy living with her, um, and in some accounts even say that the boy saw the murderer and was actually interviewed by the police, because mm. the the some accounts say that the child was there when the man actually went to Kelly's room, and the boy was then subsequently sent out to a neighbour. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the there's a later there's some there were some reports on the eleventh which corrected that, but they didn't say there wasn't a child. They said that the, there was a boy living with Kelly, but he wasn't her son. He was actually the son of, the, of one of the women who'd been staying with her shortly before the murder. So that was like another variant. And then there's a third um, that, if, correct me if I'm wrong, that states that on the day of the murder, prior to the murder, Mary Kelly had said something to the effect that she could no longer take care of this child. That's and right. So someone, what, someone yeah. came and retrieved the child from the home like that afternoon. That's the Margaret one that Paul was saying. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's uh, very, very but briefly. Weren't I mean, some this... clothes, sorry, weren't some clothes very, left very... Uh, by, by, um, uh, by what's the name? Maria Harvey. Maria Harvey. Was, I, was, I, was, I, was, I just thought yes. of that, actually. Yes. I mean, Wasn't yes, there a, a child's, child's clothing? Clothes, yes. There were two boys' shirts, weren't there? Yeah, yeah, that might be the source of it when you think about it. Yeah. Well, this this this, this, this one on the this this one on the tenth, um, after meeting this um, well in this account unnamed, but no, it says soon afterwards they parted, and a man who is described as respectably dressed came up, and spoke to the murdered woman Kelly and offered her some money. The man then accompanied the woman to her lodgings, which are on the second floor. And the little boy was removed from the room and taken to a neighbour's house. Nothing more was seen of the woman until yesterday morning, when it stated that the little boy was sent back into the house, and the report goes he was sent out subsequently on an errand by the man who was in the house with his mother. Did this boy look like a cat? Perhaps Mr. Diddles for uh, (laughs) first floor sort of Mrs. Peter's cat sailor suit. I think the... um, the oddest, the oddest twist of this is that there is one interview with Barnett, which was in the Star, which seems to imply that Barnett is confirming that Kelly had a son. Right. And that was published on the, that was published on the tenth, and a reporter um, collared Barnett in a in a pub near near Buller's lodging house. Um, and he says some, I mean, he, he even adds the information that at one time Kelly had lived in Dublin. He says she was a Limerick woman by birth, but had lived in Dublin for some time. Um, and then he went, he went on, um, the next day, however, he returned and gave Kelly money. He called several other days and gave her money when he had it. On Thursday night, he visited her between half past seven and eight and told her he was sorry he had no money to give her. Um... She used occasionally to go to the Elephant and Castle district to visit a friend who was in the same position as herself. And Kelly had a little boy aged about six or seven years living with her. And that's from this, and that, all that's in parentheses, supposedly from this interview with Barnett. Yeah, but Kelly had a little boy aged about six or seven living with her is different to actually it being her child. Oh, I agree. Yeah. But personally, I don't think there's any, any evidence of either. I think it's uh, one of these 
you know, urban myths that has crept, but it crept in so early. I mean, with all these stories, you think, you know, how did they they become so complex and so intricate so so quickly? I mean, all yeah, this I is one of, within the day of the murder. I think one of the problems with the Kelly case was because of the crackdown on uh, anybody talking to the press is that the press were, were doing, initially anyway, were, were doing the very best they could just to get whatever information they they, they could and, and, and it, it, it quite frequently they got it completely wrong. I'm always, I'm always a bit wary too about uh, accounts, the, the very early on accounts, kind of on, on the 10th, because especially if they don't appear at the inquest, uh, I always get the impression with some of those earlier, earlier accounts that maybe the police figured out the truth of the matter and so that's why you don't hear about sort of you know six-year-old boys living in the house uh, in Barnett's actual inquest testimony uh, it's just a problem I have with some of the very early counts from the 10th or the 10th 11th around there uh, they tend to kind of drop off the map very shortly thereafter I agree it's like the whole thing with the name I mean it's, it's, it's in the very early accounts he's referred to as Mary Jane Lawrence and Lizzie Fisher and she was living with a coal porter and as Paul said, you know, she supposedly lived in a room on the second floor overlooking Dorset Street, which, of course, is nonsense. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's an interesting remark uh, in Lloyd's Weekly News of the 11th, which has always puzzled me. And he said, next day, which is the Friday, I heard there had been a murder in Miller's Court, and on my way there I met my sister's brother-in-law, and he told me it was Marie. Now, how would his sister's brother-in-law know this? Is this... Is this uh... Attributed to Barnet. Yeah, yeah. Written in the uh, written in the first person. Next day, I heard there had been a murder. I went to the court and there saw the police inspector. Yes, I know. He it's says that. That's, that's reported in the Western Mail as well. I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's interesting how his sister's brother-in-law knows it's Mary Jane. Yeah. Presumably, had already been to the court and found found out that it. But nobody you know, was allowed into Dorset Street. Sorry, you couldn't get into you couldn't get into Dorset Street that morning, let alone Miller's Court. Well, that, no, that, no, I meant that, that he'd, that... he'd gone to that general area and found out where the murder had taken yeah. place from from, yeah. from somebody. That's, yeah. that's certainly a variance. The, the the one I read this this alleged interview in a in a pub by the Star Reporter. Mm-hmm. Um, that says um, this again is attributed to Barnett. Um, it says um, he knew nothing about her proceedings since he left her, except that his brother had met her on the Thursday evening and spoken to her. He himself, Barnett, had been taken by the police down to Dorset Street and had been kept there for two and a half hours. He saw the body by peeping through the window. That's so it, yes, that, Im- that implies yeah. he was actually found by the police away from Dorset Street and taken there. Not that Absolutely. he was on his way. And in this Lloyd's Weekly News of the 11th, uh, he goes on to say, he's talking about the police, da 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 they kept me for about four hours. Yeah. So uh, it, it's all shifting. Well, it also makes you wonder, like, how and when the, the police actually did find Barnett on the 9th, how, how Barnett actually learned about the crime. Uh, well, he lived in some distance away, wasn't he, by then? He was with his... Um, well, he was in he? Buller's lodging house, wasn't he? Just off Bishopsgate. On, on the night? No, no, sorry. He was with his sister in no, Port Cool Lane, wasn't he? He was lodging with his sister by the time of the inquest. Because the, yes. uh, he, he was actually kicked out of Buller's lodging house because it was creating too much fuss. That's right. 
is getting too much attention. But he would certainly have been living at Buller's at the time of the murder because it was the fuss yes. created by the murder. That's right. It, it says here in the, the, the evening news of the, of the 10th, uh, Barnett saw nothing more of her. He was indoors when he heard that a woman had been murdered in Dorset Street, uh, but voluntarily went to the police. So, you know, you pay your money and you takes your choice. Yeah, yeah that, that point about bullets is interesting because some people have interpreted that and uh, know that you mentioned it, I remember, isn't it funny how that happens? Um, but as you say, Chris, um, he, he was creating a fuss there. But I think, I think it was more the, the, the fuss caused by, you know, the, the paparazzi or the equivalent. Oh, it was. Yes, not, yeah, not so, Barnett himself. Yeah, some people have sort of, I, th I think, misinterpreted that, uh, interpreted that and, and, and thought that Barnett himself was the, you know, the direct cause of it. But it wasn't. It was, it, it was just journalists, I imagine, and police and morbid sightseers uh, knocking on the door all the time. Very good point, yeah. I mean, his own, his own alibi, because I'm just looking at a quote here. This is the, um, the Irish Times. This quotes Barnett. Last night, Barnett visited her between half past seven and eight, told her he was sorry he had no money to give her. He saw nothing more of her. He was indoors this morning when he heard that a woman had been murdered in Dorset Street, but he did not know at first who the victim was. He voluntarily went to the police, who, after questioning him, satisfied themselves that his statements were correct and therefore released him. That's almost word for word, yeah, for my evening news piece, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which just Obviously. finishes off, Barnet, Barnet believed Kelly was an Irish woman. Yeah, it's so much your earlier point there, Simon, that, 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 that sort uh, of that's sequence of events uh, sort of confirms that um, there's almost no way on earth that Barnet could have made all that up. Uh, and the, da the Daily Telegraph one of the tents says, Barnett is a porter at the market close by, and he was able to answer the police that on Thursday night he was at a lodging house in New Street and was playing whist there until half past 12 when he went to bed. So that was his alibi. Yeah. And presumably that alibi was volunteered before he'd even gone to Dorset Street. He, he went to the police station and they questioned him there, by the sound of it. You know, yeah. we've got some bad news for you, sir. Um, yes. It weren't me, Gov. Yeah. <laughs> I was playing whist. Yeah. And then this, this this elaborate biography which mentions her brother in, in, in the Scots Guards and so on, uh, which he obviously didn't make up on the spot because he knew that they were in Ireland, yeah. which, as we've discovered, um, was the case. Uh, I think Simon posted something yesterday or the day before. For that. That's it. Yeah, I did, yeah. So, you know, that the, the, the uh, 2nd Battalion Scots Guards, had, Scots Guards, I beg your pardon, um, had, had upped from Chelsea Barracks and had been deployed to Dublin uh, on the 7th of September, I think, that was reported in the paper. That's it. The they actually got on the 6th. That's it. Spot on. Yeah, so the, the, fact, the fact that Barnett comes out with this, and, uh, you know, unless he, he, he remembered what was written in the Times two months previously, suggests that... Um, he and Mary uh, knew the whereabouts of the Scots Guards. Yeah, I think that, uh, Which personally, I, 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 I have a special interest in that. Yeah, I think what happened with these early accounts, and I think it's a, you know a fairly obvious explanation, is that because all of these things like um, the Mary Jane Lawrence name, the second floor room, the young child, none of these appear, appear in the in the police evidence. It's only in the press, and so Sorry. I suspect because they closed off Miller's Court so early, and obviously the paparazzi would have descended on uh, Dorset Street, you know, like a, like a plague of locusts. And so, they, presumably, they, they were interviewing the world and his wife, 
finding anybody who even claimed that they knew Kelly. And so basically what they were picking up was street gossip. All hoping for a quick buck or whatever, no well, doubt. Yeah, I mean, they, they wanted something, they wanted some copy to put in the paper that day. And so as the court was all closed off and they had no access to any direct evidence, um, certainly until very late in the afternoon, I mean, the body didn't leave until about four o'clock, then I think, I think they were interviewing anybody wandering around Dorset Street. They would, I think they would have just gone around and said, you know, did you know who the woman was? And, and they, they, what they were p- bake, uh, picking up basically was, was street gossip. Absolutely. Yeah. I um, touched upon this, uh, you know, last week. I mean, people may be copying other uh, genuine accounts, people sort of hearing fag end from real witnesses and saying, oh, yeah. that was me, that was my experience, I heard that. Yeah. Um, and back to this case of her not having a child or having a child or whatever, however you want to read that. Before... Dr. Bond's reports were returned. It was widely uh, speculated and sometimes flat out said that Mary Kelly was pregnant at the time of her death. Does someone want to kind of maybe Paul even uh, lead us through some of the uh, reasons why throughout the decades she had been referred to as being pregnant? Well, I think it was was fairly fairly quickly... uh, uh, shown at the time that she obviously that she wasn't pregnant, um, but a lot of the medical evidence, because it wasn't what um, wasn't made public, uh, just just had a, a certain uh, longevity, which uh, it, it had the police been a bit more open, it probably wouldn't have done. But obviously she wasn't pregnant. And we get a lot of modern writers like Tom Cullen, from Tom Cullen onwards, who said she was. I I believe Cullen even said she was three months pregnant, did he not? It's a modern myth. There is absolutely no contemporary statement at the time or within even a reasonable time span, even implying that Kelly was pregnant. Barnett didn't say it. Even the privately prepared medical office, well, it contradicted it completely. I mean, there was no implication, there was no suggestion that uh, the body in the room wasn't Kelly. There was no suggestion that she was pregnant. Um, I mean, okay, the son's, the son's story is different. We know it's, uh, well, pretty certain it's bogus. I mean, Kelly may well have looked after a child on occasion and that got garbled or something like that. But on the question of the pregnancy, I mean, it, it's a modern myth and it was fabricated in the 60s. And it might be just the fact that uh, people had taken the Maxwell testimony as thinking morning sickness, right? As a possibility. Uh- I'd I'd just like to bring up a point regarding this child that may or may not have been staying with Kelly. And that is the presence in Miller's court of Dr. Garvey, who was the medical officer for the Society of the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And I can't think of any other reason, unless there was a child involved peripherally or however, I, I can't think of another reason to explain his presence given that all those other doctors were there. I don't know what people think about that. Which doctor was this? Sorry, I didn't catch the name. Dr. Garvey. Right. G-A-B-E. And uh, he was medical officer for the um, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. Indeed, uh, I just sort of chip in here, Simon. Uh, yeah. I mean, my pronunciation of it is, is Gabe. Uh, as in Gabe. Oh, Gabe, OK. Now. Yeah. Um, oh, right. He was actually from he was actually from Wales, and uh, one another bloody Welshman. Oh yeah, uh, and a bloody <laughs> Welsh stock named uh, Rhys Gabe. Uh, uh, this chap's name was Rhys Gabe as well. Uh, his yeah. name was. Um, 
he actually played international rugby for the for the for the Welsh rugby team at the, team at the turn of the century, um, the turn of the nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, um, yeah, what, what what game was? I mean, I think it's worth bearing in mind that the, the back then medicine was a fairly um, sort of general or a, sub- a subject that was reasonably generalised, and that areas of specialism were just starting to grow. Uh, grow up, so you know uh, the idea of a forensic pathologist back then um, uh, would not have had the same meaning as it would uh, in, in modern times. Um, and so <laughs> you had doctors specialising in child medicine or doctors specialising in orthopaedic medicine uh, and, and so on. But uh, primarily they were doing bread and butter type medical work, uh, and they just sort of drifted into particular areas of interest. Um, in the case of Gabe, I think he was sponsored by this children's charity as a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a renter doc, uh, and, and that's not to diminish what he did because he contributed uh, a lot um, in, in that field. But in the same sense that you know, uh, doctors uh, Phillips and Bond were uh, police surgeons, that doesn't mean that they were. Uh, you know, forensic-type, Quincy-type doctors-type um, detectives at that time. They were just ordinary doctors, ordinary surgeons who were co-opted to work with various public bodies. In the case of Bond and Phillips, it was the police. In the case of Gabe, I think, it, it, you know, he got sort of sponsored by this charity and he did a lot of work with children, but that's not to say that he was exclusively a paediatric specialist. He wasn't. He would have done other work as well. Yeah, he eventually became a divisional surgeon. Oh, indeed, indeed. Yeah. But if, if, uh, you know, the, the fact that that, that um, uh, medical personnel got associated with particular charities doesn't necessarily mean that they were um, obstetricians, gynecologists, pediatricians, or in the case of Bond and Phillips, uh, what we'd now call forensic pathologists. You know, they were just doctors who were doing a job. So there was nothing particularly childlike, if I can put it that way, um, uh, or we didn't, we didn't imply that there was anything connected with children anyway in, in Dr. Gabe being at uh, Miller's Court that day. That's my who would have sent for him? Sorry, who would have sent for him? <laughs> he may have been in the general area, but bear in mind that Gabe's portfolio would have been to visit a number of um, uh, infirmaries and uh, children's homes and hostels and orphanages uh, within his patch, and he may just have been in, in the general area that day doing his usual rounds. Um, we've got a number of people who turn up there, you, you know, the, the, there's some uh, officials from the post office turn up at, at Miller's Court. There's someone from the Irish Constabulary turn up, turns up there and, you know, that gets blown up into, pardon the pun, into he was there looking for uh, Irish nationalists and dynamitards. Um, but no, you know, these people just happen to be in town is my view and, and being naturally curious as all humans are. Um, they thought, I'll get a butcher's at this and um, turn up at Miller's Court. John Bennett, back when um, they were discussing the pregnancy, you uh, tried to pipe in there. Um, Could you go ahead, please? Yeah, it was just something about the heart. This the thing about the heart being taken away. And uh, on Dr. Bond's um, post-mortem, it just says the pericardium was open below and the heart's absent. Just wonder what anyone was sort of thinking about whether is it generally considered that the heart was removed and taken away, or was it would it have possibly have actually been around somewhere and not taken? So I'm sure I've heard it recently where people were saying actually that the heart hadn't actually been removed or whatever. It's just one another one of these things. It's um, 
that comes up about you know either she was pregnant or the heart was taken away. Right. Um, people think. And I think there was press reports at the time that they were able to replace an account for every organ. Yeah. But then, but then that's later contradicted again and yeah. by another press report. So good point. Does anyone have any um, opinion on that one? No one. That there's no record of the heart's location. I mean, you hear you hear, for example, where the breasts ended up and uh, the liver. But I think the fact that that the, the 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 location of the heart was never identified suggests it was taken away, as opposed to um, left in the room somewhere and not mentioned. And isn't it also uh, some kind of more modern day theory that it may have been burnt in the fire? Yeah, that's right. It's yeah. just it's, it's one of those things where possibly people start reading. Okay, and all the different versions of the word absent about the dictionary. Yeah. It says the heart absent. Well, does that mean was it absent full stop or was it just absent from the from the part of the body it should have been in? You know, and that sort of thing, which is mm. what I was sort of thinking of, actually. I, I think if it had been – well, it obviously wasn't where it should have been. But also if, if it had been taken out and left – because he was fairly precise about where other organs were positioned – that's what I mean, but there, exactly. But there, but there again, there are some fairly major... I mean, he mentions the spleen, he mentions the liver, he mentions the breasts. So the fact he didn't say where the heart <laughs> was... I mean, I mean, there's, there's, he said that the, the, um, the abdomen was completely um, emptied of its viscera, but, for example, there's no mention of the bladder. Let's uh, take one example. Mm-hmm. So, that, you know, there are organs, uh, abdominal organs, which, where he doesn't specify the location. So I don't think that... 100% means that the heart wasn't there. It just means it wasn't in its proper place. Whether it means that the, the killer actually physically took it away with him, I, th- I think personally, I think it's extremely unlikely that it was burned in the fire or even more bizarrely as in from hell boiled up in the kettle because I think that because of the nature of the heart as an organ, there I think, you know, certainly some... Um, Not remains. easily combustible, is it? Right. Well, no, I... And I mean, you know, there's, it's um, something, I mean, it was, it was said that, that not only did they examine the ashes, but that they were sifted, you know, they went through them with, mm. right. with a fine tooth comb. And historically, I mean, like in the case of Percy Shelley, the English poet, he was uh, cremated on the beach yes. uh, in a bit, much larger fire than what was in Mary Kelly's fireplace. And yeah. um, the only part of him to survive was the heart. Yeah. It's quite a tough piece of kit, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Like, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Who, who, who was the one whose um, heart was buried in um, an abbey in Scotland and it was recently the great Scottish hero? Was it William Wallace? Well, William Wallace sounds like because uh, he, he was. Or was it Robert the Bruce? Well, I know, I know William, William Wallace was hung, drawn, and quartered and all the uh, other gory stuff, yeah. so he'd be. Uh, sounds about but, right. Well, one of them that there was a legend that his heart was buried, I think it was Montrose Abbey. And then some years ago, they actually found it, and it's, mm. it, it was reconsecrated and reburied. But you know, it, it was still—I mean, it wasn't in tip-top condition. You wouldn't use it for a transplant, but you know, it's still—you know—it was—it was, st- was still recognisable after however many hundred years underground. So yeah, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a tough part of the body. Right. It was pure muscle. Right, and in, in the case of Percy Shelley, Mary Kelly—I mean, sorry, Mary Shelley—kept um, uh, the heart in a jar. Which I believe still exists to this day. Yeah, it, it does survive for a long period of time. 
And I think I think in Kelly's case, there's very little evidence for the for the roaring blaze, the the massive fire of popular Ripper lore anyway. So uh, if it was just essentially smold, slowly smouldering clothes, I think mm. the chance of a you know a big blaze being able to burn a heart is uh, I think very reduced likelihood. Yeah. Brilliant. Apart apart from which, I mean, as the killer had provably on at least, well, assuming it's the same killer, but, I mean, that's a tangled web. But whoever killed um, Annie Chapman and Catherine Eddowes certainly had taken organs away with him. I don't see why the concept, if it were the same killer, albeit a different organ, I don't see why, per se, the idea of him taking an organ away as a trophy or for whatever other perverted purposes is, is so outlandish. He was building his own woman, so he was taking a bit here and a bit. <laughs> um, Robert McLaughlin, you have some more um, Mary Kelly myths and legends for us? I just want to know what people thought about uh, the reports at the time that the killer may have taken away the key because the door was locked. And they forced the door open, even though supposedly Barnett had, had already told Aberline uh, about how... It could be opened by putting your hand through the window and pulling the bolt back, because Aberline gives this uh, account at uh, at the inquest. So I was just wondering what people think about the locked door and the missing key. I mean, it's I much talked the, about. I think the lock w- is described as being a spring lock, which which means that it's one of those doors that uh, shuts automatically uh, behind you, just as you remember that you've left your key inside and you've locked <laughs> yourself out. Yeah, uh, which happens to me. All the time, um, but but uh, so therefore it would have been it would have been locked. I'm assuming that that what Barnett meant was was that if if obviously I'd, if it was bolted, then somebody had to have bolted it that night, which would presumably be in Kelly, and so therefore. Uh, <laughs> Therefore, the murderer was still in the room when <laughs> when they looked in. I thought, oh. <laughs> Which, but uh, but if it was bolted, then it, it it would have to have been bolted or unbolted by reaching through the window. But if it was also, uh, if it was a spring lock, then you can oh. put down a little catch or something. That might not have been so easy. True. I mean, I don't know, obviously. Yeah. If they took also, if, if they had to take an axe to open the door, then I I think it's fairly clear that it wasn't that easy to get into. Yeah. The, key, the key must have got lost after the window got broken. Otherwise, if they lost it before the window got broken, they'd never got back in the room. Well, <laughs> well, Unless they left the door the unlocked all the time. Unless they left it unlocked. Yes. Leaving it on the latch, exactly. Um, yes, because it's, it's interesting that when... Who was it? Who followed Kelly into Miller's court when she... Was, Mary, Mary Cox. Mary Cox, I think so. that's right. Yeah, blotchy face man. Mr. Mr. Blotchy, that's him. And they just go into the room. There's no business where Mr. Blotchy has to hang around while you know Mary Kelly goes round the corner, puts her arm through the window, unlatches exactly. the door, comes back round the corner, and then they both go in. They just open the door and went in. For what it's worth, though, Simon, I, th- I think you're precisely yeah. right. I was going to bring this very point up in the podcast that you know. Mary Cox saw Kelly return home with a blotchy character at 11.45, and she didn't mention any jiggery-pokery involving sort of window tricks and hand through the window, which suggests that she didn't lock her door, but rather uh, left it on the latch. um, Exactly, yes. When when she wasn't there. Yes. I I think also, um, I I mean, at the inquest, um, Abilene 
explicitly said that Barnett had told him that the key had been lost for some time. So unless the killer had either been lucky enough to find it in the street or some other devious way, um, you know, it's... Um, I think I've got the quote. Abilene said at the inquest, I'm informed by the witness Barnett that the key had been missing for some time and that they opened the door by reaching round through the window. But as you say, if Kelly were only going out locally, um, I have to say to my... Um, it sounds as though we live up north and know all the neighbours, but, if I mean, I've literally got a shop on the corner, and it's not unknown for me to just go down the road and, you know, leave the front door open if I know I'm only going to be five minutes. Exactly. But I'm sure Kelly would have, you know, Kelly would have done... <laughs> Note to self. <laughs> yeah, but I also think it, um, doesn't it... Doesn't it rather introduce the disturbing possibility that the killer... If, if Kelly was used to leaving the door on the latch, the killer could simply have pushed the door open and, uh, and entered that way. I mean, only as an alternative to the uh, traditional killer-client scenario. Um, if, he, if, if, if the killer was simply an intruder, it might have been a case of just pushing the door open. But, lo um, but lo logically, I'd have thought, I mean, I, I, I would have I'd assumed that Kelly had enough sort of instinct of self-preservation that after she'd got rid of Mr. Blotchy or... Mr. Astrakhan, or whoever her last client of the night was. And, I mean, she, she would have been pretty certain that, that Barnett wasn't coming back. Um, I would have thought, you know, self-instinct, if, if she was actually going to bed to sleep rather than to perform any other function, then she would have actually well, locked I mean, the door before she did so. That's true, true, <laughs> unless, unless she was totally sort of insensible by then. I mean, uh, when Mary Cox saw her at 11.45, she was incapable of bidding her a simple good night. And the blotchy character ostensibly had some uh, some alcohol with him, so if she drank more booze on top of that, it might have uh, yeah. uh, decreased her guard. But she was still allegedly so up I... and around and, well, singing at about one in the morning. Mm. Mm. Now, Paul, you had suggested that the door was bolt-locked, and that's why they uh, had to force it open and, and why they were having difficulty with just a spring latch. Does everyone else seem to think that the same way? Because it has been raised before on a previous podcast. I think it was the Fiona Rule podcast that McCarthy would have had an extra key to this door. And why didn't McCarthy just um, go get his extra key? Or was he hiding the extra key? According to uh, one newspaper report, um, it says that, uh, quote, as Barnett had stated that the key had been lost some time ago, and when they desired to get into the room, they pushed back the bolt through the broken window. Well, that suggests that the door was bolted. Yeah. Um, though, of course, if again, if they could uh, reach through the, the, the window and, uh, and deal with the bolt, then um, why would McCarthy have taken an axe to his door and... and mm. uh, but there again, there's a, there's, a, there's a report from the Times on the 10th specifically saying that Kelly had a key. Yeah. It says I, the, pair, I, the, pair, the pair reached Miller's Court about midnight, but they were not seen to enter the house. The street door was closed, but the woman had a latch key. And as she must have been fairly sober, she and her companion would have been able to enter the house and enter the woman's room without making a noise. Mm. Which is an good. interesting sort of uh, slant on, on Mrs. Cox's testimony. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in terms of Barnett having a spare, um, you know, we are talking about sort of <clears throat> the, uh, the the world capital for, for, for slum rents uh, in this particular part of the world. 
Mm. Um, I mean, even in the contemporary photographs, you can see how ramshackle uh, these courts were. I mean, we only really get a view of um, number 13 from the sunny side, so to speak. Uh, but if you look at similar photographs of, of similar courts over that period, these were really rough dwellings. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not axiomatic, I don't think, that... Uh, that McCarthy, I said Barnett earlier, didn't I? That, that, that McCarthy would necessarily have had uh, a spare key. Um, and, you know, the, the, the whole door opening business has been, I think, blown out of some proportion. Um, you know, it's, it's, some people sort of picture McCarthy turning up like uh, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Here's Johnny's here. That's got some whack, whacking great shards of wood out of the door. But... Um, <laughs> If you read, if you read most of the same newspaper reports, you know he forces the door open. You know, yeah. um, so he uses the the pickaxe as a, as a jemmy to try and, I presume, minimise as much damage as possible to his own property. Well, I think this became more dramatic because of the the length of time. I mean, the uh, Phillips got there about ten past eleven. And he was hanging around the door, wasn't eventually forced until 1.30 because they kept thinking that the bloody dogs were coming. Yeah, and the mysterious photographer who could take a picture of the, of yeah. the murder by photographing the eyes, yeah. How does all this business with the door square with the story about Superintendent Arnold ordering the removal of a window? Well, that's been on the threads recently. Yeah, I think yeah. we all just scratched our heads and said, well, it doesn't make sense because if he did, there'd be no need to force the door. My interpretation was that all the reports I've read say he ordered the removal of the window, but none of the reports say that the window actually was removed. I, I think what happened, I said this in a post the other day, mm. I think the most likely sequence of events is that Arnold arrived and basically said, look, the dogs aren't coming, we've got to get in there. Um, and he was told the door was locked, was probably mooching around, said, right, let's get the window out. McCarthy appeared, his property, and... And um, it, after a bit of a conflab, said, well, you know, let's, let's uh, force the door. Because even if they'd removed the window, there would still have been obvious practical difficulties about, you know, firstly getting the doctors in there, you know, giving Phillips a leg up to get through the window. And mm-hmm. obviously, obviously, at, obviously at some stage they were going to need to get the door open. You paint a vivid presuma- picture. Presuma- presumably McCarthy <laughs> said, well, look, presumably said, well, look, it's my property, I'll, I'll, I'll get you in the door. And I think that there's no, there's no report that says that the window was removed. And I think it's all this thing about he probably said, well, look, let's get the window out. And I think it's uh, the order may well have been given for the window to be removed, but I don't think it was ever done. Well, I think we, the, that uh, photograph of Miller's Court taken later in the day, I think, makes it apparent it was never done. Yeah. yeah. And there's that the idea of the photograph being taken through the hole in the glass or, or the window was removed so they could take the photograph. Um well, it was, it, was a sash, it was a sash window. I mean, once they'd got the door open, they could have raised the whole lower part of the window. Yeah. Mm. So, Dr. Phillips, of course, took one look at the broken pane of glass and said, obviously the work of a glazier, or at least someone who has yes. use of magic. <laughs> <laughs> now, I have, a, I have a question about Miller's Court that's been puzzling me for a long time. How did Avalon get from Scotland Yard to Miller's Court in 20 minutes? It was at Commercial Street Police Station. He must have been. That day, <laughs> or, or Lemon yeah. Street, one of the two. Yeah, got to be at one of them. Yeah, because all the, all but then the he was. Well, he would have been investigating, presumably con- still conducting inquiries. So therefore, he yeah, would presumably so. still have been over there. 
Yes, it's just the, the, all the reports, even in the same papers, say, you know, within a short amount of time, a large number of cabs arrived from Scotland Yard. Yeah. Bearing various people. And I thought, well, that's clever. How do you do that? Because all the, all the roads were, or most of the roads in central London were closed off that day because of the Lord Mayor show. That's right. Including Scotland Yard, funny enough. I don't suppose it says anywhere, does it, that Abilene was uh, was in the office at... Lemon Street or something? No, it doesn't. I've looked, I've looked everywhere. Although, Simon, this might have been why uh, it took so long for people like Arnold and Anderson to get to the scene of the crime. Arnold gets there at one thirty, and Anderson gets there at presumably 10 to 2. Well, Arnold should have got there fairly quickly because he was only down the road. But Anderson and Bond, I can understand not getting there till about 2 o'clock. Don't, don't forget you've also got the complicating factor of Warren's resignation, so presumably, you know, the police powers that be were in some state of chaos. Right, there would be different channels to go through. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Or there may have been. I, I don't know that there were, but there may have been. Now, we've gotten ourselves inside the room then. Let's talk about what was seen and what wasn't seen in the room. Uh, specifically, and this will be directed towards you, Simon, the letters FM appearing on the wall uh, okay. in Mary Kelly's blood. Okay. In 1988, you uh, said that you had spied the FM on the wall, and that made itself into the lore surrounding the suspect James Maybrick and the Diary of Jack the Ripper. Can you explain to us uh, how that all, all happened? I certainly will. And first of all, I'd like to say it was 20 years ago, so uh, my memory's not that good. But I happened to find a couple of letters. Um, one is from Nick Warren of Ripperana on the 16th of September, 95. And also found uh, a reply to him on November the 10th of 95. And if I can take two bits from these letters, I think they'll explain everything. And I'm glad that Paul's here because he'll probably remember it couple of things that um, I've forgotten. So here we go. This is from the letter. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give it a go. Right, this first part is from Nick's letter to me. It says, the key reference in the Maybrick diary is to the initials on the wall at Miller's Court. In the diary, the initials became F.M. Florence Maybrick, not your B.A. for Barnet. Now, I don't remember that bit at all but are itemised uh, in the diary as an initial here, an initial there. Messrs. Begg and Fido have assured me that this is mere coincidence, notwithstanding the fact that they say you're the only other person even to know of the initials on the wall. So that's the bit from um, Nick's letter. All, all, everybody square with that? Mm-hmm. OK. <clears throat> in my reply, I said, it happened at a city dance Jack the Ripper seminar. I was probably talking to just Martin and Keith. Paul, living in Leeds at the time, made only occasional visits to London. And we were talking about turning a black and white photograph into colour. I'd seen this demonstrated on TV and thought it might be an idea to experiment with the Kelly photograph. During this or a subsequent conversation, I pointed out the initials on the wall, reasoning in true Grand Guignol style that Kelly had finger-painted the murderer's initials on the partition wall beside her bed. My discovery was pounced on with enthusiasm, but try as we may, none of us could decipher the initials, let alone fit them to a suspect. 
And there, as far as I was concerned, the matter was dropped. So endeth the story, chaps. Uh, Simon, I got a question. Yes, um, please. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, what was the source for you initially uh, noticing the photograph? Like, was it Farson's book or Rumbelow's book, or what were you <coughs> yes. looking at? There is a paragraph in the letter. Sorry, I omitted it. It said, depending on which printed copy, Rumbelow, Farson, Begg, etc., of the Kelly photograph was examined, the initials appear more or less d- distinct. And for my money, the best exposure is in the Sphere paperback edition of Dan Farson's book. So, that, yeah, so that's the one I noticed it in. I was just uh, wanting to know because there were only, of course, before the centenary in eighteen eighty-eight, and uh, there weren't that many photographs of uh, Mary Kelly actually around to view. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it is quite prominent, actually. Like the Farson photograph, uh, uh, it seems to jump out at you a bit more than than in some uh, other reproductions uh, post nineteen eighty-eight. Yes. But I don't know where Nick Warren got the idea that I thought it was B.A. for Barnet. So, I don't know where that's come from. Can you add anything to this, Paul? Were you there? Not, not, a, not a thing. Not a thing. I, I remember lots of sort of uh, drunken conversations over curries and everything else, but uh, oh, yeah. that's not one of them. Okay. I, 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 I don't remember any, any part of it. <laughs> I don't even remember any discussion about colorizing photographs. So yeah, I can only assume that I was sitting at home in Leeds. Um, in, <laughs> in, um, in Shirley Harrison's book, The Diary of Jack the Ripper, The Discovery, Investigation, The Debate, it says that you, had, you Simon, had mentioned privately to one of our consultants, I'm quoting, which I, I don't know who she was referring to, maybe Skinner? Um, Martin Keith or myself. Okay, um, that in a photograph of the dead Mary Jane Kelly on her bed, there appeared to be an initial on the wall. There above the bed is a letter M, the mark of Maybrick. To the side is another letter F. It is not a color picture, but the smudgy letters could easily have been written in blood. And, um, go ahead. Did I say all that? Shirley Harrison said all that. What what part is, um... extrapolated from what you had said to the consultant isn't made very clear as far as like for instance calling M the mark of Maybrick uh, right off the bat well no I I, I didn't describe no I didn't describe um, the initials to any any particular person I certainly didn't speak to a diary consultant the only people I spoke to about it were maybe Paul if he was there at the time um Martin and Keith. That was it. Um, I got a note. Of course, here. Simon. Uh, but Martin sorry. Keith and I were, the, were were consultants to Shirley. She did hire us as consultants. Oh yes, I so, know. I'm. I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm assuming famous. that what Shirley is is basically saying there is that, uh, um, and I, I would suspect that it's Martin is very much. Uh, I'm not trying to suggest that Keith isn't, but but Martin is very hot on crediting other people, whereas I would probably not even remember who told me the information particularly. I just just would have clocked. Oh, there, there were initials on the wall or something. Um, yeah, right. But I don't think that in in uh, you know it, it, it would most likely have been Martin who might have uh, remembered this and. Uh, 
and, and conveyed it to Shirley. And then what you're getting there is just Shirley's representation of that. I mean, certainly... That's right. I mean, have... you know, I wasn't speaking to anybody as a consultant to the diary. I was just speaking to other Martin. Oh, no, I mean, it had been Martin remembering you, back... Yeah. Martin would have been remembering back something that had uh, been said, you know, a couple of years earlier. Yes, um, okay, that's good. That's good to understand the sequence of events there, because sometimes you know people who don't know can be led to believe that uh, you, Simon, actually came up with. I mean, although you did uh, say that there was FM on the wall, it was an, another party who who discussed that with the uh, with Shirley Harrison, and 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 that's how it ended up in her book. Not that you yes, ever, uh, what, you what, never personally made the connection between the FM on the wall and and um, Florence Maybrook. So no, not at all. Right. No. Um, uh, uh, Nick Warren did go on to ask me if during these seminars um, might there perhaps have been a little puddle who eavesdropped on your conversation or wrote to you a long forgotten letter. Would anyone? Uh, uh, and thanks for answering those questions, Simon. Um, but uh, okay. would everyone agree that that's one of the uh, most enduring myths surrounding the Mary Kelly crime scene is writing on the wall? I mean, it, it I think it, I think it's one. Of, uh, personally, I think it's one of the most easily disposed of. But yet, something that newcomers to the case, oh yes, uh, I would, agree. Would, would be familiar with. Yeah, I think if you if if you can magnify the FM. Uh, sufficiently, uh, I think it becomes fairly clear that it's uh, that it's a blood spatter. Or that, as I, I have a memory of that. A sort of gobbit of blood hits dead centre. It, it sprang up either side and, and then ran down, and that formed the M. And the F yeah. is a very indistinct uh, mark anyway. I mean, it, it looks like an F, but it could be anything. It, it just just happens to look yeah. like that, but I think that's. I seem to remember that that from a from a, a high resolution. I think the 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 thing that the the thing that I think you have to bear in mind is that there are actually two references in the diary to the initials. That there, when when whoever wrote the diary is describing the Kelly murder, um, there's the there's the doggerel verse, which is an initial here and an initial there, would tell of the whoring mother, but then. When he's describing the Kelly murder, he says, I left it there for the fools, but they will never find it. I was too clever. Mm. Left it in front for all eyes to see. That amuses me. Now, at the risk of quoting myself from the Kelly book, the real problem I have is that it requires the killer to be psychic in that, um, well, I'll, I'll say it as I've, I've phrased it, um, in order for him to leave the initials on the wall for all eyes to see, i.e. to be spotted later by those clever enough to see them, he would need to have assumed two things. Firstly, that the murder scene was going to be photographed. And secondly, that the picture would be taken from such an angle that the initials on the wall would be clearly in line of sight. The other pictures we have of victims are post-mortem photographs taken in the mortuary, not in situ at the murder scene. How could the killer have known that a photographer would be hired to photograph the body in the room and so record the initials for all time? 
and if the photographer had chosen or been instructed to take the photograph from the foot of the bed, or as in the case of the other victims, as a close-up of the face, the initials would not have been visible, and a record of them would have been lost forever. Why is it necessary, I'm sorry, for, uh, for, for the, uh, the diarist to be talking about a f- photograph? Why, why isn't he just saying, I left it there for all to see? I mean, he's not meaning all, everybody, I, in a photograph. It just means for anybody who went into the room. Yeah, le- left it in front for all eyes to see. Well, surely that just means, you know, the people who went in the room. It's not, it doesn't presuppose a photograph, does it? I left it there for the fools, but they will never find it. I was too clever. And it just had that, that, that bragging, um, sort of braggadocio tone of the diary, as though, you know, he was fooling everyone. It depends who the fools are. Oh, yeah, no, fools, I know. I'm ju- I just mean, I, I just wasn't s- certain why you were assuming that, that the author of the diary was a, whoever it was. Let's assume that it was the murderer for the sake of argument. Let's make it a little bit easier. Why that person would have would have assumed that he was talking about a photograph? Wasn't he just saying, I left it there for all to see? You know, anybody who came into the room, they would have seen it. Yes, it, it depends, because there's another... But I didn't want to witter on, sort of quoting myself at a huge length. But it also, it also depends on who you interpret the fools to be. Is it just the police? Or is it, you know, the world at large? Is it a sort of just megalomania anybody? thing? Anybody well, who went into the room, I, 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 I don't... And, I'm not meant to be awful here, but I, I think you're making an assumption there that well, the... That, I mean, which I is just, a perfectly reasonable assumption if we're assuming that this was written... Um, and uh, as, as we do, of course, uh, it's a perfectly reasonable assumption given the fact that the diary is a modern forgery. But if, on the other hand, it was a, a yeah. genuine document. Further to your point, Paul, I might not even refer to uh, Mary Kelly at all. I mean, when you think back on the Annie Chapman murder and the piece of envelope with the letter M on it uh, that was found yes. at, at her scene, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily even refer to the Kelly murder. No. But it's, no, I, uh, I just think it's so vague, an initial here and initial there. I take Chris's point. Um, uh, John, yeah, Jonathan, uh, can, I, can, I, can I just sorry. say that you, even though there are no, uh, even though there are no dates uh, mentioned in the diary, in fact, I think to call it a diary is a bit misleading. It's more of a journal because there are no, there, there are clearly identifiable events like the, the, the race meeting and this and the other. And certainly the, the, the Kelly... Uh, the Kelly murder you can identify as such. It's on, I think it's page 241 or something. And that part I quoted about I left it there for all eyes to see is definitely a part of that same small extract. And it also gives the impression that it's written... He starts off, I've just read about my latest. And so he's just read about it in the papers. He's in full flight, you know, all the, all the braggadocio and all the megalomania is, you know, if it's... Um, is, is running high, and, and he's describing the murder. So it is, I think it's definitely part of that same event. The, the initials certainly refer to uh, to, to, to the uh, the Kelly murder yeah. within the diary, yes. Yeah, I, I think the mention of the initial here, the initial there, only works because we know there was a photograph, because we know, or think we know, that initials were seen in them, that the initials... <laughs> I'll mention was spelled out FM, Florence Maybrick. Take all, that out, of yeah. Yeah, take all that out of it. Um, we wouldn't know what he was talking about. 
But where did the where did the forger of the where did the forger of the diary learn about the FM? I've forgotten. Probably reading your book, Paul. I don't think it's mentioned in anything. I don't know. I don't know that there's that there's a, a mention of the the photograph in uh, of, sorry the, of the initials. Uh, I can't recall a, a mention of it in print prior to the uh, prior, prior to the brouhaha about the diary. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the diarist is just lucky um, that that you know is what we we might assume then that that, that Simon amongst, happened to see yeah. the FM and 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 he just got lucky that he had mentioned in the diary leaving initials, which yeah. came first, the initials or the diary? You know? Although, then again, of course, people would. Uh, Maybe what the, the the forger was doing, not knowing that anybody else had seen the initials, uh, observes them himself, uh, makes vague allusions to them, and uh, on the hope that uh, people will then take another look at the Mary Kelly photograph, will see the FM, and think, "Oh my God, you know, this has got to be genuine." Hmm. That's um, got to be models. it. Yeah. So the diarist uh, guess, so. could have based his entire uh, the. Uh, the forger, for the uh, sake of argument, could have based the in, the entire diary on the initials that he saw in the photograph FM. I mean, because if he already had, or he or she already had the uh, the suspect, you know, in mind before they discovered the initials, then that would be uh, quite a good thing for the diarist that the initials happened to resemble the letters FM. As opposed to so, <laughs> BA or you know, yes, I mean that 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 that's a good that that seems to be a, a reasonable point. Is that is that the FM being noticed in a in a copy of Fastner's book or whoever uh, leads to the entire uh, forgery idea? But I think the truth of the matter is though that that you know you could probably make anything out of that mess on the wall and. Um, you know, even Helter Skelter, you know, with or, or BTK with enough imagination. Um, so uh, it is. Yeah. it is fairly. It is fairly. Uh, this, one of the problems with the diary is that is the particular. I mean, it's 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 a bit different now because years have gone past and and people uh, have got a quite a bit more information. But when you actually first saw this thing, uh, it was obviously. Uh, or it appeared to be obviously not genuine. Um, there are a number of reasons for for that. I've, I've still got the, uh, the my my original notes when the very first time I saw it when I was sent a photocopy of the diary in a, in a Manila envelope. I used the Manila envelope to, to make notes on. I've still got that. Um, but you start getting all these questions arising then about the FM. Well, isn't it remarkable, really, that the forger should have seen the FM when nobody else had, apart from Simon, who's discussed it with Keith and Martin, who recalled it years later when they confronted with the diary. Um, well, indeed, but I think, so I, I, think, I think what we've discovered since, Paul, is, you know, pe- people are seeing sort of um, uh, Levantine demons, aren't they? Sort of Baphomets and all this sort of stuff. Oh, in, yes, I mean, I, I, I've... I've sort of, so I, I, you know, I dare say that um, the FM, if anything, is one of the more convincing um, Will of the Wisps in that entire photograph. 
Well, FM, uh, FM happens to be there. I mean, Bafometer or whatever it is isn't. So it's uh, <laughs> yes, or at least the, the, the FM it it doesn't take uh, a great deal of imagination to see the FM on the wall. Um, it does take a great deal of imagination to see uh, Bafometer on on the wherever it's supposed to be seen. Yes, uh, and the number twenty six on the partition behind uh, behind Kelly's bed. Um, <laughs> Which, which I, I must say, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on, but you know that, that's a, that's another um, paradolic image that, that, that people have clocked. Um, this number twenty six on, on on the partition. It's what, what sort of attracts me to that is it, it, it's actually in the right sort of place where you'd expect a number twenty six to be on a front door, and of course, uh, number thirteen Miller's Court was. Uh, the scullery, if you like, of uh, number 26 Dorset Street. So yeah. that, that might work. And, and what appeals to me there is it, it, there's no sort of hocus-pocus attached to it in terms of, uh, you know, it's a message from the murderer or whatever. It's, it's a fairly mundane sort of thing. But, yeah, there are lots of spooky things in that photograph that people have seen. Well, on the 26th that, that you've noticed, Gareth, uh, shows up on uh, uh, the Lamoureux print. It doesn't... If you look at the the photograph Don Rumbelo found, or the one that was returned to Scotland Yard, uh, you'll find that uh, the 26 doesn't show up on either one of those. It actually shows up on the the French publication of the photographs in the 1890s. Um, the, reaching, the number 26. I'm reaching for your book. <laughs> <laughs> it does. Uh, I can't see yeah. is that it uh, says 26, and I give myself up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got a copy of the book, uh, the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs, if anyone's interested. It's £500 to, or, or nearest offer. <laughs> um, Robert, let's uh, put this FM to rest real quick. And that's, um, you, you haven't really explained, to my satisfaction anyway, how the FM appears on some copies of the photographs printed in some books but doesn't appear in other copies of the photographs known to exist. And I know you know uh, quite a bit about that, so could you, uh, as briefly as possible, go through that for our listeners? Well, uh, when you take a photograph, uh, you know, we don't even know if if these, uh, you know, either photograph that we have today, the one that, that, that Don found or the one that was returned, we don't know if either one of these is taken from the original negative. These might even be copies of copies. And then beyond that, you have to set it for print, uh, which, you know, further you have to reduce it, then typeset it and do all of that. And, and everything you do to a photograph changes what's, what's in it slightly. Uh, I mean, you'll have things that are added to the photograph, details that are taken out of the photograph. Uh, it's, it's why the, when you see it from book to book, uh, you see it reproduced uh, differently. Uh, I mean, some features are more noticeable in, in a particular copy while they're less noticeable in another copy. Um, and, and even the print makes a difference. Like, uh, the, the FM is, is far more noticeable on the, the Don Rumbelow print from 1967 than it is from that sepia one, the one that was returned. Uh, it's, it's far less noticeable. Uh, in fact, the F doesn't even look like an F on that one. Uh, the M you can still sort of see, but uh, it, it does make a difference. Um, Really, I, I don't know what else to say on it. I mean, other than I think of, that, like Paul and, and uh, Gareth and others, I'm, I mean, I believe it's blood splashes I, and nothing more. 
Right. Uh, one more thing I want to touch on, and then any, and then I'll open it to anybody else who um, has more miss or anything else they want to discuss here at the end, is um, not so much to do with uh, Mary Kelly's death, but what happened to her room afterwards, uh, McCarthy's rents. Chris Scott, I believe it was you who pulled out some article a month or so ago saying um, how long it took between the discovery of uh, Mary Kelly's body to uh, Jack McCarthy re-renting out 13 Miller's Court. Yeah. Then years afterwards, I believe um, um, Kit, what was her name again? Um, at, the, at the time, it was Kit Watkins. Uh, Kit Watkins. Name was, yeah, Kathleen Willis uh, Blake uh, Watkins Coleman. But, right. Uh, she, she had visited Miller's Court several years later. I believe, and um, reported that the room was still blood splattered. Apparently, uh, McCarthy hadn't done any cleanup. So, Chris, uh, let us know what, what, what you had found in that newspaper report and how long it had said that, that Jack waited to, Jack McCarthy waited to uh, re-rent the room in Miller's Court. It was a small footnote to an, um, an article about the Mackenzie murder. Um, it was in the Birmingham Daily Post uh, on the 18th of July, and it says, it's only two lines that mentions it, uh, it describes the uh, Mackenzie, the Castle Alley murder in some detail, and then just as a little footnote, it says, it is a somewhat curious coincidence that the room in the court in Dorset Street where Mary Jane Kelly was murdered and mutilated on the 9th of November remained empty until Saturday last, when it was let to a new tenant whom the news of the last crime has quite unnerved. So I've said from the date of the article, the last crime referred to is the death of Alice Mackenzie. So it actually stayed empty from the 9th of November until Saturday the 13th of July, 1889. So that's what, nine months? Okay. Um, and, um, do we, um, yeah, at the time I didn't say so on the boards, but I thought that that was pretty astonishing that, that McCarthy would have waited that long, mm. that maybe the press report was an error. I, she didn't wait that long. Maybe, maybe nobody wanted the room. Yeah. yeah. Why would you? Yeah. Well, exactly. One careless owner. <laughs> and then when Watkins uh, visited the room, that was in in 1890. Is that right? I'm going off the top of my head. It's uh, late late 1891, and she wrote about it in February of 1892. Okay, she 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 had uh, reported that the room was still blood stained. I mean, I don't I don't just necessarily dispute Kit Watkins, but are we to believe really that that Jack McCarthy didn't do anything really to uh, clean up? the walls at 13 Miller's Court, considering we've seen the photographs. And Yeah, I was just going to say that um, uh, she said that uh, the boards were still blackened with blood. Um, uh, there, now, there was a lot of blood in the room. There was blood on the floor. There was blood on the walls. Uh, and it, blood tends to soak into wood. It, it's very diff- blood is very difficult to get out of wood, you know, I imagine. And, uh, you know, by the time Watkins sees the room, they might have been telling her that it was blood as well. I mean, they knew the history of the room. Uh, the people in the court. And it, it could have just been blackened from, as wood does darken over time from various uh, things, and she wouldn't know any different. And she, but she didn't refer uh, to the 
So she wasn't specific whether she saw the blood on the floor or on the wall. She just said the wood. Is that she right? wasn't. She mm-hmm. she she didn't mention. Yeah, she said it was blackened. So over time. So. Um, okay. So so. I, you know, I, I I'm I'm one of the, I'm one of the few people who actually have the article, and I should send it to over to you, Krista, to transcribe it. I mean, it's it's one people talking. Yeah, definitely. You know, definitely. Nobody's ever really seen. So. Yeah, no, I'd love to. I have a copy of it as well. I could uh, probably do it as well. So there is a good possibility that the myth that McCarthy didn't do anything to clean up 13 Miller's Court. Can I just add one note of caution? I've, I've, I think there's some evidence that fairly shortly after uh, the murder that either, either the physical layout of Miller's Court was changed, of, of number 26 was changed, or that the rooms were renumbered. And... Uh, 13 Miller's Court is included in the 1891 census. But there are, there are six people listed at, live, living at 13 Miller's Court, but that's three different families. That's, a, that's a, a married couple in their 30s of the name of Kelly, ironically, um, a widowed woman and her brother, and um, a young widow and her son. And they're all listed as living at 13 Miller's Court. Um, so either something's old, old is going on. You've got you've got uh, six people from three different families living in a twelve-foot square room, which I think is highly unlikely even for the crowded East End. Or somehow number thirteen has been extended. All the rooms have been renumbered. So just a sort of cautionary note as to there may have been something going on. That was in 1891. Okay. Uh, could they also <coughs> be referring to any of the upstairs rooms, Chris? Uh, um, are the upstairs it, rooms mentioned in that census, or? Yes, yes, there are. Um, in it doesn't include all the numbers. Um, just to, I won't I won't run through them all, but um, certain addresses are missing, like number one, number four, number nine, number ten, and fourteen upwards aren't listed. Uh, it, it lists numbers two, three, five, six, seven, eight, eleven, twelve, and thirteen. And uh, number two, for example, has nine residents. Number three has three residents. Number five has 11 residents. So so 13, but could also refer to some of those people maybe even living upstairs, like where Prater used quite to Quite possibly. Quite possibly. Either, either a larger room was redesignated as 13 or possibly, but I have absolutely no evidence for this. I mean, there was all that, there was all that space on the ground floor of number 26. I mean, possibly... possibly um, Possibly uh, McCarthy took the, while he was having to have the room cleaned up, he might have somehow extended the room forward and, and made it larger or even subdivided. As I said, number 26. All, all I can say is... It, sorry, go ahead, John. Sorry? No, number 26 is, was three stories, wasn't it? And the back, yes. the back section <coughs> yes. or the back area where 13 was was only two stories, I've noticed here. That's right. And in fact, yes. all, all the... Cottages or dwellings in the court are all two stories, but what fronts onto Dorset yes. Street is three or three and a half in the case of number 27. So, could be a case of reading. Um, yeah, like yeah, the other thing we don't know. Go, wait, uh, hold on a second. Gareth, quick. Yes? Gareth? Yeah, I was just going to say, Chris. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks, John. Uh, I, I don't think we need necessarily rule out the possibility that there were five people crammed into. A small space. I mean, it might only have been a temporary arrangement. Um, when you consider that the, uh, the amount of, 
I'd, the amount of space allocated I'd per, find, I'd per, find, per cot yeah, in I'd, the DOS house would have been smaller. Go yeah, on, Chris. I'd, I'd find that easier to accept. I'd, I'd find that easier to accept if they were six members of the same family. But as I said, you've got a young, you've got a married couple in their thirties. You've got a, a com- completely unrelated widowed woman and her brother, and then a young widow and her son. They're all listed as separate households, all living at number thirteen. Oh yeah, but if you take the doctor's model, uh, we're, we're, we're totally unrelated. People are thrown together. Yes, it could have been partitioned off, of course, into 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 separate little booths, as it were. Yeah, and and, yeah, and also I think the other the other the other cautionary note is we've got you know we've got to decide really. Um, of those addresses listed as Miller's Court, which ones, which ones were the residences at the back on either side of the alleyway? Um, the only info I can give on that is that number 26 itself, uh, actually 26 Dorset Street has a discrete address. In ni- 1891, there's only two people listed living. So you've got to decide, you know, how many of those so-called Miller's Court addresses are actually physically 26 Dorset Street addresses? Well, I've got here, just, just to... Just to throw this into the melting pot, uh, Kathleen Blake Watkins. Uh, I don't haven't got the full thing transcribed, but it says uh, what I've got written here. It says at Miller's Court, which is is, is just my summary of, of the article. Uh, at Miller's Court, she met Lottie, an occupant of Kelly's room, who claimed to live further up the court in 1888 and to be a friend of Kelly. So she's obviously assuming that I've transcribed it correctly was saying that she lived lived further up the court. And I've also got a reference to her saying that um, she spoke to... Um, she spoke to... Um, sorry, I've lost, lost the thing in front of me. But she, she spoke to Elizabeth Prater, who, uh, she said, lived above Kelly at the time of the murder. So... I would guess that she's she is looking at uh, uh, at, at the right room. Yeah, she Prater told Kit how she'd been woken by Diddles at about four a.m. Heard the cry of murder. Um, Elizabeth then took Kit across the court to visit the current occupant of Mary Kelly's still bloodstained room, uh, Lottie. Which with, with, with this with this woman being Lottie, who had a broken and battered nose, uh, the result of a kick from her husband's boot. She says, "I I was living quote I was living further up the court then." Uh, she uh, the article- says, "I'm afraid to go out alone at night because of a dream I had that a man was murdering me. Maybe I'll be next." <laughs> the article that you're referring to, Paul, seems to be one by Robin F. Rowland, who wrote about Kit Watkins in 1988. Uh, because when I consulted the original Kit uh, article uh, from uh, 1892, Elizabeth Prater is not mentioned. Uh, Robin F. Rowland, uh, a century later, uh, mentions uh, Prater and a few other things that don't appear in the article the article about Kit Watkins, uh, Toronto's Globe and Mail. Um, All right, yes, that's the Toronto uh, Mail of 1892. But not the original 1892 article, because the original 1892 article doesn't mention Elizabeth Prater. Uh, this seems to come from Robin F. Rowland in 1988 because uh, uh, I, I questioned Robin F. Rowland on it once and he never responded to me um, because there are several errors in his article. There were errors that were reproduced in the A to Z as well uh, that do not appear in Kit's original articles uh, on the case. So 
which, which is probably I, I more of a reason. Been going from that, from that original, uh, from from the uh, yeah, the original one doesn't mention Elizabeth Prater, so. Oh, yeah. um, well, maybe I should have the original sent to me as well then. <laughs> yeah, I'll, no, no, I'll send it. I'll send it both to you. I'll send it both to you and Chris because uh, I think it definitely needs to be transcribed because I think Robin F. Rowland, a Canadian writer, like I said, he's responsible for uh, a, f- a few problems with uh, the original Kit articles because he, re- he obviously researched Kit, Kit, but there are some mistakes in his articles. And these were reproduced, as I said, in the A to Z. And, uh, yes. Well, we would have taken it from that article, probably- I think. Okay. Anyone have any uh, final thoughts they want to get out about the myths and, and legends surrounding the death of Mary Kelly before uh, we wrap it up? Yeah, I've got I'll just, just very briefly, John. Well, can I, can sure, I Gareth, and, and, and then Gareth, and then John Bennett. Mr. Bennett. Um, mine relates to that uh, previous conversation, really, uh, and I won't, I won't elaborate on it because perhaps we can expand on this in a later podcast. I think one of the biggest myths, as far as I'm concerned, is, is that Elizabeth Prater did not live in the room above Mary Kelly. Uh, and I can leave that hanging there, if you like, as a kind of a, an Orson Welles-type mystery <laughs> for now. But um, I've done some digging. Okay. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Or that means I'll have to... She did not live in the... Or that she did. She did not. She didn't. Uh, I, 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 I don't, I don't oh, believe that she right. did. Okay. That means I'll have to invite you on for another podcast, Gareth. <laughs> That's a subtle, a subtle ploy, isn't it? Nothing more than a subtle, subtle ploy. <laughs> and John Bennett? I just can't trust the Welsh. <laughs> no. Yeah, I've got a, a thing that, um, in the same, in the same way that we, um, because nobody knows who the Whitechapel murderer or murderers were, it's been necessary to sort of invent him uh, through theories or suspects and all that sort of stuff. Does anyone here think that probably the biggest mystery about Mary? Kelly is actually Mary Kelly and that over the years she's been the one, she's been the victim that's been focused on by the films as being, and obviously she was different in appearance I guess from some of, from the other victims people have sort of created this um, quite a glamorous figure or whatever it is and it goes on to the point where you get people who sort of feel they sympathise with, with her because she's different or they feel they know her, it's, it's become almost necessary to invent her because her background is so sketchy um what do people think of that one well i think there's a temptation isn't there to to fill in the blanks when uh when there's a lack of knowledge and i think you know kelly being the being the least known about there's a temptation to kind of fill in the blanks make her more interesting and keep reinforcing the fact that you know she's the youngest and the prettiest and uh, and all the rest of it. And so I think a lot of the mythology originates from there. I think she has also got this uh, this tragic uh, side to the story, which, if it be true, um, is a reflection uh, on on Victorian society in a way. Is that she marries very young? She marries a, a, a collier. He gets killed in a in a mining accident. She is then left without any means of uh, of support very little opportunity of work probably where she was located involved in prostitution through through uh, coercion by a relative and so on i mean that's all a very tragic story isn't it it's it's and it it's kind mm. of sort of endears you to her it give, gives you a lot of sympathy for her uh, and then you get all these other bits that she she was quite intelligent she was an artist of no mean degree she was attractive I and mean, the fact that she 
was at the age of 25, very possibly a real hardened drinker, uh, alcoholic perhaps, uh, would testify to a slightly different different picture of her than, uh, than the popular image. Oh, she's almost become a celebrity victim, isn't she? Yes, she After has. a fashion, because the others... Yeah, we we know so much about the others, but about their real life, we know a lot about Mary Kelly. Assuming that the the story of uh, that Barnett tells is true, uh, as as Chris pointed out right at the beginning of this discussion, uh, everything that she said about herself could be true, every single thing, but for the fact mm. that we can't confirm it because her name wasn't Mary Kelly. So we, we you know all of that tale could be true. I think. I, I don't know that Barnett was necessarily somebody that Mary Kelly would have been looking to gain sympathy from. So I can't see why she would necessarily have made up, made it, made up all of that, that story to give her the tragic background. Good point. Okay. Well, um, as you guys can probably hear, my family has arrived, so I'm going to have to call that a podcast. Thanks, everyone, for being on the show today. Thank you, uh, Thank Simon you. Wood, also for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. I've enjoyed it. And that was RipperCast, episode 33, The Life and Death of Mary Jane Kelly, part two. I want to thank everybody who was on the show today. That was Paul Begg, Robert McLaughlin, Chris Scott, Gareth Williams, Ben Holm, John Bennett, and Simon Wood. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, available at our website, www.rippernet.com, or in the iTunes Music Store, keyword Jack the Ripper or RipperCast. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or any of our past episodes, please feel free to email us at rippernet at mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week.